0: So what would you like to talk about?
1: Well, First of all, I'd like to be the voice on the periphery. Please and thank you.
0: Lola is the voice on the periphery. She's on the margins. You can't see her. Her audio is not as good. So we're very much inclusive of the marginalized and the peripheral.
1: <laughs> the Zionism is like nationalism, but for, specifically for Jewish people, right?
0: Yeah, Zionism is sometimes divided into cultural Zionism, political Zionism, religious Zionism, but basically, if you just use the word Zionism, you mean the project of, the project of, let's put it this way, Zionism means that the Jewish people should have their own state, that's what Zionism means. Cultural Zionism means that the Jewish people should have their traditional culture as much as possible. Revived. That means religious texts, the Hebrew language, uh, out Jewish traditional outlook, defense of the principle of revelation, respect for the for the Talmud, for the Hebrew Bible, for Jewish learning, for Jewish communities, for Jewish morals, Jewish principles, and so on.
1: Okay, but why if you're okay if you're a Zionist, why don't you get out to and like live in Jerusalem?
0: The question is, if you're a Zionist, why don't you go live in Jerusalem? Well, it's not the case that if you support, if you want the Jews to have a state, it doesn't necessarily mean that you want to live in that state. You may or may not want to. Those things can be separate.
1: Oh, is it like me being Russian and not really looking forward to living in Russia anytime soon?
0: It's not the same as you being Russian and not wanting to live in Russia anytime soon. You're Russian by virtue of your citizenship, because you were born in Russia, correct?
1: Yeah.
0: You're a Russian, sure. also. You're all, you're also Russian because your family is born in the Soviet Union. You spoke Russian growing up in the household. The Soviet Union is part of Russian tradition, and therefore you inculcated many Russian traditions. You identified to some extent with Russia culturally. Lola's mother often cooks us mm-hmm. the very delicious borscht. <coughs> we watch the president's address. I mean, the <laughs> Russian president's address. Okay, on the 31st when we celebrate Novigot or the Russian New Year I mean doesn't not matter who not the, the truth not, not, not yeah it doesn't matter who the president is the point is these are all basic so these are all basic like many Soviet people continue these traditions wherever they end up living but you're a Russian citizen by virtue of the fact that you were born in Russia but a Zionist is someone who believes that the existence of the State of Israel is a good thing for the Jewish people and that the destruction of the State of Israel is a bad thing not only for the jewish people but often for all of humanity because very many zionists don't see israel as just a state among states but as an exemplary state to an extent exemplary because of its exemplary for many reasons exemplary because it's the rebirth of a political entity after millennia the unprecedented revival of previously dead language because they've made the desert bloom and are one of the world's leading developers of new technologies, just an engine of innovation, and in many respects, a promise of hope for all of humanity. Now, obviously, there are people who will hear me say that and say, no, they're the exact opposite because they have been oppressing Palestinians since their existence and they're bloodthirsty and Gaza's the world's biggest open air concentration camp and so on. And without diminishing the problem of Gaza and the West Bank, and the various causes to that problem and the various potential ways of resolving that problem, I think you can't dispute the making the desert bloom, you can't dispute startup nation, you can't dispute the revival of the language, you can't dispute the return to an ancient homeland, and you can't dispute many of the amazing contributions that the Jewish uh, people and Israelis and the Jewish state of Israel have made to humanity. Or if you find them disputable, then as I say, I think you are failing to see the reality because of ideological reasons. Again, I'm acknowledging that there are problems with the West Bank and Gaza, among other things. So, and it's basically a Zionist is someone who says, there are many states in the world. There are many Arab states, there are many European states, and the Jewish people ought to have a state, and now that they do have a state, it's good that they have one. And it should reflect Jewish tradition and it should be reflective of what's constitutive of Jewish peoplehood, which at least is in an the ancient book of history, uh, amongst other things. So that's what it is to be a Zionist. So the word Zionist, if my simplest definition is to be a Zionist is to be someone who supports statehood for the Jewish people.
1: Right, so Zionist and Semite. Is it the same thing? Or is that one of those?
0: <coughs> the question is, anti-Zionism, is anti-Zionism the same as anti-Semitism? Yeah. No, usually, without getting into any sort of overly refined scholarly analysis, Yeah, yeah what?
1: Uh,
0: basically, people say anti-Zionism means that we criticize the state of Israel, and anti-Semitism means that we criticize Jews as Jews. That's what but I say, anti-Semitism, right? So some people say, we're not anti-Semites, we don't like the state of Israel, but we love, or at least are neutral towards Jews. And many Jewish Zionists say, no, very often criticism of the state of Israel masks criticism of Jews. I'll give you a very brief example. At the conference today, the Jewish Leadership Conference of Jewish Conservatives in Manhattan, there was a speaker who said, boycott divestment sanctions movement against the state of Israel, primarily, Affects and is meant to affect American Jews because American Jewish students for example are ostracized are prohibited from traveling to Israel for study are they get the they get they get the bad treatment so who actually suffers American Jews, not the state of Israel. The state of Israel does not suffer so much from boycott, divestment, and sanction, but the Ameri- but Jews in America suffer, especially on campus, from boycott, divestment, and sanction. So this speaker's point <coughs> was that even though some people say BDS is only against the state of Israel, in other words, it's only anti-Zionist, in fact, because it predominantly affects uh, not the state, but American Jews who support the state, therefore it's anti-Semitic. Does that make sense? That's the basic distinction.
1: Yeah, it goes broader than just the state. And
0: by the way, many. The by the way, sometimes, sometimes uh, again, out of ignorance and sometimes out of malice, there are those who say, "Look, anti-Zionism can't be anti-Semitism," because there are Orthodox Jews who are anti-Zionist, and there are leftist Jews who are anti-Zionist, and if anti-zionism was anti-semitism that wouldn't make any sense because these orthodox jews are orthodox jews they're not they're not jew haters because they are themselves jews and orthodox jews but this group indeed opposes the project of zionism because they feel that the establishment of statehood for the jewish people should not be the result of human effort it shouldn't be like taking the kingdom of heaven by storm but it should be because the Messiah has come and the time has come for the Jews to be gathered in the land of Israel. It shouldn't be a human political project, it should be a divinely led, a divinely guided uh, theological act. So there are some ultra or very orthodox religious Jews who see political Zionism as anti-Jewish. There are also religious Zionists who are both Jewish uh, religionists, believers in Revelation and in the Jewish tradition, and supporters of the project of the existence of the state of Israel. And in fact, religious Zionists are sometimes, (coughs) religious Zionists are sometimes those who spearhead the settlement movement, because they see Jewish settlement in those parts of Eretz Yisrael or the land of Israel that are currently regarded under international law as occupied territories, as a matter of the fulfillment of uh, Jewish religious law. So in fact, the position of Jews in the quote-unquote occupied territories differs whether you view that issue through the lens of international law, through the lens of uh, secular Jewish national law, or whether you interpret it or view it through the lens of Jewish religious law which is called Halakha so religious so you have some religious Jews who are anti-Zionist because they think Israel is a political project whereas it should have been a messianic project led by divine impulse you see some religious Jews who support the state of Israel as the fulfillment of a divine promise and all the more so they think that settlement is a religious mandate and you see some Jews who for uh, liberal moral principles Think that Israel is just like any other state, and therefore should live coexist along a Palestinian state. Does that make sense? So Zionism is basically like you support political statehood for the Jews, but it has its own varieties.
1: Then, by that logic, <coughs> every single people who deserve a state just by the virtue of being people.
0: The question is, don't. Wouldn't by that logic you support statehood for every people that doesn't have a state uh, wants a state. People or uh, yeah, so there are more peoples than there are than there are states, and there are more peoples than there can be states.
1: What's the what's the nation
0: involved? The Kurds. Kurds. So some people support the project of statehood for the Kurdish people, and I'm not weighing in on the merits of those claims. But yes, there are. are peoples who want a state the Jews were not the only peoples who wanted a state many peoples have states so there are many states that you can of which you can say they're Arab states there are many states of which you could say they're European states and so on and um, at the on the, when Israel was being um, created at that time the Jews thought look we would also like to have a state. And frankly, our claim to a state is reasonable. And our claim to a state in this location is reasonable. And frankly, um, people who oppose statehood for us, it's kind of like this. Not exactly, but kind of. You know, you'll often hear someone who says, comes out and say, we oppose guns. We don't like guns. I mean, politicians, okay? Political or, or uh, media personalities.
1: Especially elevators.
0: Ban guns, get rid of guns. We hate guns. Guns are horrible. And they walk around with armed security themselves and they don't understand that hypocrisy. Or they say, borders divide us. We should get rid of borders. Walls should come down and so on. And yet their mansions have nice big walls protecting them from the proles. What? From the plebs, from the common people. Okay? They have nice big walls keeping the keeping the unwashed masses far away from them, the paparazzi. Or whatever, you know, they say... The
1: homeless, I would say. The common people. The the common
0: people. So there's very often that type of hypocrisy. Put your money where your mouth is. You don't like walls? Tear down your own walls. You think everybody should be allowed in your country? Throw your doors wide open and let the homeless stay with you. You see what I'm saying? So there's also that measure of hypocrisy when it comes to the issue of statehood. And that's so blatant. Um... that I say, as I said before, you'd either have to be blind or malicious not to see it. So, for example, if you don't think that the Jewish people should have a state, but you do not care about other people having a state, or you support or you support Palestinian nationalism, but you don't support Jewish nationalism. Now, now maybe that you raise the question, then shouldn't Jewish nationalists support Palestinian nationalism? Well, as I say, there are more peoples than there are states, there are more peoples than there can be states. Some people's claim to statehood might be legitimate, some people's claim to statehood might not be legitimate.
1: What does make a state (coughs) like that be legitimate?
0: Well, in the case of the Jewish claim to its own state, they had a long...
1: Yes, Dugan's analysis. No, they had a
0: long history, they had a language, they had a a continuous presence in that territory for a long time, okay, They they were dealing with political persecution, and so on and so forth. So I'm not saying that there's no grounds for a Palestinian state, or for more than one Palestinian state, because there are those people who have argued that there can't be a two-state solution since, since Gaza and the West Bank are, you can't imagine a coherent political unity between Gaza and the West Bank. So maybe we need to talk not about a two-state solution, but about a three-state solution. There are also those people who think that we should roll back the clock, so to speak, or roll back the map to the time when Gaza and the West Bank belongs to the states that are adjacent to them, Jordan and Egypt. So I'm not weighing in on that question. I'm only saying, I'm only answering your, uh, what you asked of me, which is number one, what is, uh, what do people mean when they talk about Zionism? What's the difference between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism? And if you support Zionism, doesn't that mean you should support all projects of statehood for peoples?
1: Right. Going back to the definitions. So can there be someone who not non-Jewish but
0: Zionist? Lola asks, can there be someone who is non-Jewish but Zionist? As many of you may know, there is a huge group of non-Jews who are Zionists, and that's uh, Christian Evangelicals. They support the state Uh, of Israel in the political project of statehood for the Jews because they have a shared moral commitment that's reflected by um, Jewish people and by the Jewish state, but also because that's in some parts of their political uh, theology or political theory. The gathering of Jews in Israel is like one chapter in the book that for them culminates in uh, the end. It's basically part of their eschatology or doctrine of the end of times. Many Christian evangelicals support uh, their Zionists because they think that statehood for the Jewish people is part of God's plan, which culminates in an end of times vision that's more favorable to the Christians than it is to the Jews. But the Jews play a positive part in that and right now Christian Jewish relations benefit uh, greatly and not, not cynically, not in, a not in a Machiavellian way, but many times genuinely and um, let's say sometimes genuinely and sometimes merely politically from that, uh, from that kinship. Now you can only go so far. Jews can't support evangelical Christianity's vision of the end of times, but on the political plane, they don't need to. They only need to have uh, friendly relations against common enemies, which is
1: standard fare in politics. How's that different from intersectionality that you described?
0: Intersectionality is the intersectionality of the left. Intersectionality of the left means the maximum number of shared characteristics and the maximum number of shared interests, basically a broad coalition of those who regard themselves as oppressed. Now, we can, once we call intersectionality the intersectionality of the left, understand that there is logically and could be and should be perhaps at least the concept of the intersectionality of the right. Now, is the intersectionality of the right a broad coalition of oppressors? No, because the division between oppressed and oppressor is the fundamental dividing category for the intersectionality of the left, but the right would have its own fundamental categories to divide, it, to divide and divvy things up and it wouldn't use the categories of oppressor and depressed. But it might at least recognize the intersectionality of the left as its enemy, not necessarily because it has chosen to make intersectionality of the left its enemy, but because the left has chosen to make the right its enemy. So what would an intersectionality of the right imply? It would imply a broad coalition of those people who reject the basic schemas and concepts represented by the intersectionality of the left. For instance, it would be in favor of such groups as those that champion hierarchy, tradition, family values, moral values, closed, relatively closed political units, Maybe politics as such, if to some extent the left is trying to overcome politics. It would include a defense of religiosity, of the the divine revelation, and many other things as well. So, intersectionality of the right is a powerful descriptive concept, I believe. Potentially also a strategic and normative concept. One thing that the concept of intersectionality of the right can accomplish is it can help us to make sense of puzzles, I think. So for example, there are Zionist Jews who clearly are excluded by the intersectionality of the left. Not only are they excluded by it, they're often its target. So they're on the opposing side they sometimes would like to make common cause with other declared enemies of the left, of of the intersectional left. And so in making common cause with those other enemies and outcasts, they sometimes read the works of traditionalist Catholics or of Russian conservatives they sometimes feel drawn to right-wing populism, to alternative for Deutschland, to Orb- Viktor Orban. Sometimes they feel more of a sympathy for Putin than they feel for another leader. Sometimes they're drawn to Trump and to the make America great agenda. And You can see that in all of these cases, they're going beyond their identity as Zionists, or in other words, as Jews who support the political project of statehood for the Jewish people, in order to have a broader coalition of those like-minded, more or less like-minded, targets of the hatred of the left. To suggest that anybody who goes beyond their own tradition, to look for intellectual resources in other traditions that might at times contradict their own, That is ridiculous. Those other traditions are very valuable. They're valuable in themselves, and they're valuable strategically for the intersectionality of the right. The relationship between Israel and, you know, between the Jewish community and between Christian evangelicals is not an intersectionality of the right. Because if it were were an intersectionality of the right, It would include all the other people who are regarded by the intersectionality of the left as enemies, which it doesn't. It usually sees, in fact, it usually sees other uh, members on other political groups on the right as also being a problem. But this is starting to change. Israel under Netanyahu has spoken warmly about its relations with Putin's Russia. It has denounced Soros in support of Orban, the Hungarian leader. So I think you're actually seeing, oh, and Jews, there's, as some of you may know, there's a Jewish group in Germany's Alternative for Deutschland, which some people say is far-right you neo-Nazi know, group. Well, they are not supportive of Islamic immigration, and many Jews who suffer from Islamic anti-Semitism obviously support movements that are, let's say, wary of importing Islamism
1: into their country.
0: Incidentally, if you don't know who Owen Benjamin is, <coughs> the well, blacklisted—if you don't know who Owen Benjamin is, the blacklisted comedian—it's worth watching. Uh, he has a recent special where he uh, he makes some very funny jokes about how Israel out—not uh, Israel—how Germany outsourced its anti-Semitism. Uh, they became very good, tolerant um, Europeans. Said never again, never again, never again, and then brought a bunch of Islamists in to do the dirty work for them. <laughs> now he's a comedian. But he's a he's a smart guy. He's worth watching. So Owen Benjamin, if you don't know who he is, I didn't know until about two weeks ago. Shout and out uh, to Vic Bear. Very funny. So Owen Benjamin, I saw him on. Uh, I watched his. I watched when he was a guest on Ruben recently. So, I didn't know who he was until two weeks ago. Lola told me about him. She said you got to watch. Okay. She said you got to watch this guy. I watched one of his comedy specials. Very funny. Very very funny and I started listening to some of his uh, YouTube videos and um, I am gaining a lot of respect for him. He's a smart guy, he's gone through some very serious blacklisting um, for saying things that are obviously true, but very prohibited. And he's a man of, uh, of courage and principle because it's, it's easy to be Scared into submission to become a spineless little jellyfish when somebody threatens you and to Put your principles in your pocket shut your mouth put your head down and go skulk off uh, Obediently he didn't do that and it cost him a lot not to do that. He spoke things that were both um, Obvious and sh- from what I hear, you know, for example that It's kind of crazy to talk about three-year-old uh, transgenderism and things like that Um, am I going to be the target now of great hatred anyways doesn't matter because yeah who knows but doesn't matter courageous and uh, very very funny okay and the thing is I saw on the Ruben report they had you know and Ruben's uh, background backdrop a lot books and artwork and things like that and there's a basketball so he looks at it and he says I'm six foot seven and I can't play basketball, for me, that's a taunt, you know? And I can relate, I'm six foot seven, I also don't play basketball, but I'd have never been on the Ruben Report, so there's still one thing missing.
1: Dave!
0: Well, look, I gotta tell you, this is gonna be a long video today. <laughs> <coughs> you know if you've watched my earlier videos or if you know anything about me, that I graduated from the University of Toronto recently uh, with a PhD in political science uh, with some difficulty because four people resigned from my dissertation committee over three years. Since I work on Alexander Dugin, a Russian political theorist, a supporter of German conservative revolutionary thought and many other things, as someone who has said some vile comments... Uh, from time to time on Facebook and elsewhere. He's appeared on Alex Jones. And there are people who have reasons not to like him. But in my view, he is a uh, hes a great lecturer. His lectures when he was at Moscow State University, uh, I thought when I was a student, were very uh, very good. I learned a lot from them. His books, I had translated a number of them. Articles and so on. I learned a lot. Uh, I owe Dugan a lot in my education in Heidegger because if you just study typical Heidegger studies at the university, you'll get postmodern leftism, since a lot of them are left Heideggerians. They all read Heidegger, and they all learn from him, but they all put him into a leftist political perspective, as I discussed in a previous video. Well, Dugan was the first person I encountered who pointed that out and who actually put his finger on some parts of Heidegger's philosophy that are completely um, skewed by leftist reading, so I am very thankful to Dugan for many things. I learned a lot from him, even though I disagree with him from time to time on uh, this topic or that topic. Now, I want to say that... I want to say
1: something. Hang on a
0: second. Not yet. Not yet. So, four people (gasps) resigned from my committee at the University of Toronto. Give me a second here. And National Post, hold on, hold on. National Post wrote an article about it where it said some professors saw me as a malicious far-right propagandist and many of them were glad to see me go when I graduated and I was glad to see them go too. Um, Now, here is the issue. I was sure I wanted to tell my story while I was a graduate student, but I didn't want to risk my graduation. And I'm glad that I didn't in the sense that I'm glad that I am now a doctor. Whereas they may have kept me, me, whereas they may have kept me from, um, they may have kept me from graduating if I had spoken out. But I was eager to tell my story, and I thought, you know, I'll defend my dissertation, and when I finish, I will say to those defenders of academic freedom and of viewpoint diversity what happened at the university that I was basically persecuted for an interest in um, not only Alexander Dugan but also Carl Schmitt and Martin Heidegger and generally for even though I didn't call it then but this view of the intersectionality of the right that you can learn something valuable from reading uh, right-wing theorists even if you're a a liberal or on the left because you better know the whole spectrum in order to make sense of it well I have to say that a lot of the people who quit my committee were classical liberals and defenders of free speech and free thought.
1: You mean identified them? Yeah,
0: they identified, identified as classical liberals and defenders of free speech and free thought. And yet they behaved like totalitarian leftists who burned down uh, universities when Milo or any or Ben Shapiro or Lawrence Southern or anybody else uh, shows up to speak there or Charles Murray. So they betrayed their own stated principles in a way that was hugely revelatory to me. Extremely interesting and extremely fascinating. So I thought, you know what? There's a journal. I won't name names. There's a very popular journal of public intellectuals out there. Very uh, active in beating the drum about the oppression of uh, academic free speech on campus. Often championing the causes of outcast, conservative uh, undergraduates and other such topics. And I thought, for sure, they're going to want to know what happened to me at the University of Toronto. And indeed, they did want to know for many months. Uh, But I had a suspicion. Now, listen, I'm not bad-mouthing them. I respect the people there and I respect the journal, but there's a point I'm trying to make. I suspected that because, in my case, it wasn't like I supported John Stuart Mill and somebody from the far left shut me down but rather i support inquiry and i was studying someone on the quote on the far right let's say alexander dugan i thought that because of that nuance hang on i thought that because of that nuance they would actually uh, bail on my case even though it's a scandal in a way you know that lindsay shepherd played a canadian undergraduate student played a clip of jordan peterson uh, in her class <clears throat> to set up a debate. You know, she played a clip that was Peterson and the person that he was debating on a, on a Canadian TV channel. and She was hauled into, hauled into some offices and said that that was equivalent to showing uh, Hitler neutrally and so on. And it became a big a scandal. Uh, and now many of you may know who she is, Lindsay Shepard, free speech warrior. Um, all of that is fine. But at the University of Toronto, Department of Political Science over three years, I had four people resign from my committee and say much worse than it's like playing Hitler neutrally, uh, actively accusing me of supporting all kinds of nefarious things. So I thought for sure those people who are interested in um, academic free speech would take on this case. And when they didn't, I thought, oh boy, that is a bad sign for classical liberalism. And that's a bad sign for the free speech junkies. And that's a bad sign for the defense of academia. Because if you don't understand that intersectionality of the right is part of viewpoint diversity. If you don't understand that you can't have a defense of free speech and free inquiry if it doesn't include studying nationalist theorists and so on, then you're missing out on something big time. Now, I kind of expected that when this story got out, the intellectual dark web would be knocking at my door saying, come on our show and talk. No? I think I'm
1: too good
0: looking for them. You think I'm too good looking for them? Yeah, nah, they're pretty good. dapper. You know, they're pretty dapper. I want Benjamin. Looks kind of like me, doesn't he? A little bit? No, not really? At all? A little I'm bit? A Six seven? Time. Well...
1: You should play basketball together. Have you ever gotten that?
0: <laughs> anyway, I was... I thought... Where, where were but you know, ahead? I have a concern. And my concern <laughs> is that... The so-called intellectual dark web, or the so-called you know viewpoint diversity, um, free speech junkies, those people who support academic rights and so on, they always see the situation as the defense of classical liberalism against the threat of liberal, of liberal progressivism, and they're just as willing to shut down the free speech and the free inquiry of people to the right of them as the liberal progressives are to shut down this free speech of the classical liberals. Well, I'm sorry, folks, it doesn't work that way. If you defend free inquiry, and if you defend free speech, and if you write op-eds in defense of John Stuart Mill, like one of the professors who resigned from my committee does uh, in the Canadian newspaper Globe and Mail, and if you think that all of these things must be uh, defended, then you have got to tolerate, perhaps even to promote, at least to know something about what I've called in this, in the videos today, the intersectionality of the right. You cannot forbid the study of Alexander Dugan, Martin Heidegger, Carl Schmitt, Romanian nationalists, and so on.
1: Well, as, a, on.
0: as someone who defends free speech, you can't say, like, this guy in The Guardian who was interviewing Zizek recently. <clears throat> I posted on my Twitter, interesting interview, I don't have a problem with reading Zizek. I reposted the interview and recommended it because I think you can learn something from it. All right? You can learn. As I said, read to read Zizek, read everybody. Hold on. Hold on. Hold no. on. Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> Let me just say this thing. So the guy in the Guardian video, he said, if you want me to interview any other philosophers, he said, if you want me to interview any other philosophers, please leave your suggestion in the comment below where I'm really interested in getting to know. But no literal fascists. No, within reason, no literal fascists. What does it mean that he said, I'll interview other philosophers, but no literal fascists? Very simple. No thinkers on the right. Because for these people, a thinker on the right is a literal fascist. There are. Are there any literal fascists today? No, to be a literal fascist, that does, you don't even know what that might mean. Fascism is a word that's so bandied around without any specific meaning. Does that mean that you've read the doctrine of fascism, you support a right Hegelianism? This is That the state is greater than the individual because of the absolute idea? Like, has anybody even read that? Does anybody even study Hegel anymore to even make sense of right Hegelianism? What is a literal fascist? When he said, you can have other philosophers on here, but no quote-unquote literal fascists, he meant leftist thinkers are approved. Liberal progressives are approved. <coughs> Classical liberals are approved of. But if you're a nationalist, if you think the concept of ethnic identity has a place at the table, if you think that the, that uh, the, theological, hierarchical, div, divine, revelatory arguments have a place at the table, if you support the idea of the closed society or anything like that, maybe he meant no, no Platonists. You can't even, no Platonists, no Neoplatonists. It's no Straussians. This idea that, you know, he'll interview philosophers but no literal fascists is... To use a very popular word among people who like to—I uh, was going to swear, but you know this is a family. This is a family-friendly channel. So among people who like to obfuscate or to confuse things, it's a dog whistle. It's a dog whistle that says no conservatives, no Republicans, no figures of the right. Now the funny thing, of course, is that Zizek thinks that Clinton's a bigger problem than Trump, and Zizek is in this sense, you know support uh, uh supported trump and thought that a trump victory would be better so zizek is reactionary from one perspective in his own ways hold but that's the, not the point this guy didn't want to interview any philosophers of the right
1: let me paraphrase that <coughs> to common mortals so go ahead zizek is like a literal
0: fascist in that regard well <laughs> yeah this guy doesn't even know no zizek is not a literal fascist in that regard but You see, the beautiful thing is this. When you're faced with something that is confusing, like Zizek is for, Cor- uh, for Jeremy Corbyn, as I understand, you know, for labor, against capitalism, but also supported Trump. Uh, for some people, that's enough just to make their heads explode. Just like the fact that Netanyahu might have said something against Soros in favor of Orban, or just like the fact that these Orthodox Jews in Britain felt like they would be safer in Hungary, or just like the fact that Michael Millerman thinks that you can learn something positive from Alexander Dugan all without denouncing him all the time all of these things just make some heads explode it's like they take this ball and they just let that's it, this, their brain just lets all the air out right away it can't compute, it can't function and the solution for that is not, to, is not only to mock them, to scorn them <clears throat> but the solution, the solution also is not only to uh, you know, it's not to talk down to them The solution is to say our conceptual apparatus has failed us. The concepts with which we make sense of these political realities no longer are adequate to the political realities themselves. You can't call everyone who's slightly to the right of liberalism a fascist these days. It just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. Look at who Brazil just elected, a so-called far-right nationalist. And you might think... Whatever you think in that conceptual series that this means, you know, he's he's illegitimate. 55% of the people voted for him. He must be an anti-Semite. Actually he loves Israel. Not that those are the he's most a white not male. that those Yeah, he's a white male. Not that those are the most important things. I'm not saying the Jewish question or the question of Israel is at the center of all of these analyses. I'm saying our political concepts need to be reconfigured in a way that matches the political realities a little bit better. Sometimes the concepts are designed to match the political realities, to describe them. And sometimes the concepts are designed to create new political realities. Everybody who's so quick to chime in, you have a shooting and suddenly you say, Donald Trump is to blame. Or you say, in another case, you say, no, somebody else is to blame. This community, that community. So much better for analysis and policy purposes and even to help you fashion your own rhetorical strategies if we slow down and do a better job trying to get the cat trying to get our categories right trying to get our categories right there are some people who say there's no such thing as moderate islam no there is a moderate islam and you make it more difficult for there to be a moderate islam when you try to define it out of existence by saying that all islam is literal fundamentalism no There, I posted a video, you can see on my Twitter feed, called Un- Undercover Jihadi. Uh, Canadian uh, former radical, a Canadian former Islamic radical, who renounced his radicalism, did not renounce his, uh, his Muslim identity, identifies as a Muslim Canadian, a moderate Muslim Canadian. And he worked for the Canadian Secret Services to help bust a radical Islamic terror plot in Toronto, that would have done great damage to the city and that included a credible threat against the Prime Minister to storm his offices, capture him and behead him. A Canadian patriot, a Canadian hero, a mensch, a great man, a moderate Muslim, a moderate Canadian Muslim. So those people who say there's no such thing as moderate Islam, you can't be a moderate Muslim, you're wrong. This man, you can't, you know, Muslim identity is incompatible with Canadian identity. Tell that to, watch undercover Sheikh, sorry, undercover Jihadi. This man deserves all of the praise that any Canadian patriot can muster on him. And, and so on. So there are moderate Muslims and those people who try to define them out of existence are making a mistake. There are Jewish conservatives, and those people who try to define them out of existence are making a mistake. You can be a normal Canadian or American person who for good reason has some theoretical sympathies for regimes that liberals regard as authoritarian or or, um, reactionary or retrograde, and those people and their sympathies should not be defined out of existence. Uh, Jewish Trump supporters should not be dehumanized They exist, they have a right to exist, and we should try to understand them. And that's true for every puzzling phenomenon that we meet in politics. We should try to understand it, make sense of it. Even if, ultimately, we have to say, even though we understand you, we don't have a place for you. Even though we understand you, we declare you our enemy. Understanding is not a guarantee of friendship, but it can at least expand the possibility of friendship and allow you to do more uh, with your. It can allow you to deal with your enemies in a way that is better than if you go in there uh, blind and uninformed. Thank you for watching. If you enjoy these videos, please subscribe, share them with anyone else, uh, post them on Twitter if you feel like it, and uh, leave a comment below. You can see the other videos at millermintalks.ca or on YouTube. And, um, yeah, we'll try to put out material as regularly as we can uh, when we have something to say or when there's something to be said. Thanks for watching. Good night from New York.
1: Also, ideas are being taken for what oh, the yeah. phrase should be. If you have. Like, the you know, the end phrase? Like.
0: No ideas are being taken for what the
1: end phrase should be. No.